0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Shu, and this is the January 2022 episode of the podcast. I'm still getting used to saying that. I thank you so much for being a listener. This month, we have an interview with Dr. Rachel Sullivan. She is the author of the Emergency Medicine Practice Issue on Acute Joint Pain. And if you haven't seen it, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice Issue this month is on Neonatal Jaundice. Both of them are published and available to you in the EB Medicine mobile app, as well as online at ebmedicine.net. And while you're on the website, stop by our free open access blog, which includes information about cases and clinical pathways and a whole host of resources that are there and available to you for free at ebmedicine.net. And of course, if you're not a subscriber, it's a new year and a perfect time to find this valuable resource in your inbox to help you with your continuing medical education. So, Happy New Year, and here is Dr. Sullivan.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Sullivan. I'm Assistant Clinical Professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and core academic faculty at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You are the author of the January 2022 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice titled Diagnosis and Management of Acute Joint Pain in the Emergency Department. So first of all, thank you for being the author and writing that issue. And second, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Why did you end up picking this topic to author?
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I chose this topic of arthritis or acute joint pain because I really think it's a neglected topic in emergency medicine. I thought it needed a little more attention, and I think we need to broaden our differential when looking at acute joint pain. I think uh, most emergency physicians really love critical care and are not super excited about this, but it, it's a very interesting topic.
0: It is. And the breadth of information that is encompassed in acute joint pain is ridiculous. I was reading through this issue going, there is just a a giant list of things that you have to consider when you're talking about acute joint pain. I'm a hundred percent convinced I don't run through every single one of these in my brain each time I see someone with acute joint pain. I was exceedingly surprised and very happy to read the issue. As you brought up, when we're talking about the differential diagnosis for joint pain, is there an approach you recommend, some easier way to try and summarize all of this in my mind or to categorize it as I'm approaching someone with acute joint pain?
1: Well, first and foremost, when you evaluate a patient in the emergency department, you have to consider septic arthritis at the front of your differential and once you've ruled that out, then you can kind of explore everything else. So as, as emergency physicians, we must consider that and we must rule it out. The differential diagnosis beyond that, you can consider infectious, degenerative, autoimmune, all of the other causes once you've got past that that big thing that's staring you in the face that you cannot miss.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in the approach to joint pain when i was in residency which seems like eons ago now it was very much a is this a mono or polyarticular presentation and does that type of differentiation even matter anymore is that relevant to the differential diagnosis still today
1: i think that can guide you as to you know which direction you're heading but you can't really rule it out so for example If you see a swollen knee in in someone that's had a tick bite and, hey, it's monoarticular, it's got to be Lyme arthritis, well, probably, but if you see someone with a swollen ankle and a swollen knee, it could still be Lyme arthritis. So it does give you some guidance as to which direction you're going to go, but it's not really cut and dried. This is mono and this is polyarticular.
0: Good. Well, then if septic arthritis is the most important thing to exclude from a patient's presentation, let's just start there. Tell me about septic arthritis and how it is I'm supposed to go about differentiating that from the other forms of acute joint pain.
1: So I think every time you see. A patient with acute joint pain, you've got to think about this. You've got to consider the population that is normally affected with septic arthritis, and it does have a bimodal incidence. It's peaks in young children and adults aged greater than 55. But then you've also got to, that, that changes things when you look at someone who's immune compromised, who has IV drug abuse, has a prosthetic joint. Those are all additional risk factors. So when you're looking at someone, you have to look at the degree of pain they have in the joint, their mobility they have. There are things that can guide you towards septic arthritis, such as fever. However, as we'll see as we delve into this, having a fever or not having a fever is not a way to exclude septic arthritis.
0: And when we talk about septic arthritis, this is specifically... Bacterial or viral in etiology is that right?
1: Well, in in general, we would mostly think about bacterial because viral arthritis is. It certainly can present with the fever and joint pain, but it's not something that has the same urgency of treatment in emergency medicine, where you've got to you've got to do the arthrocentesis and start the antibiotics right away. So, I think we're looking more at the bacteria.
0: You mentioned that. Septic arthritis can be polyarticular in up to 20% of cases. And when that is the case, the mortality is higher. Why is that? Is that usually associated with people who are immunosuppressed?
1: It is often, indeed, um, but more often with people that are bacteremic. So they're septic and the bacteria are seeding multiple joints. So that, that can be associated with just overwhelming sepsis or immune compromised or IV drug abuse or someone that's got an endocarditis that's just continuously seeding uh, bacteria into the blood system. And these people are, are very sick.
0: And when we see these people, the, the typical bacterium that are the cause, this is usually Staph and Strep species?
1: Yeah, about 91% of the time, you're going to have staph and strep. Pretty high percentage. You always want to cover for other bacteria, but those are your main bacteria.
0: Perfect. And then when we think about bacterial arthritis in someone who doesn't have a prosthetic joint, we start at the top of the list with a common presentation for gonococcal arthritis. That's a pretty common form of septic arthritis. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's actually very common, uh, particularly in your younger population. You're more likely to see that in a menstruating female or pregnant woman. This is more likely to be a polyarticular presentation, and pretty much all of these patients are going to have an infection. They may not have symptoms for it, but they're going to have a genital urinary system, rectum, or pharynx infection of gonococcus.
0: So when we're examining someone who is in this age population and is young and healthy, maybe even has a history of prior sexually transmitted infections and they present to us with this acute joint pain, is there something clinically in my examination I can rely on? Or is it more just historically that I'm asking about uh, a history of prior sexually transmitted infections or? urinary symptoms? What am I using to try and focus in on something like gonococcal um, arthritis?
1: So I think these are your younger, less sick patients, and they may or may not have a rash. They may have papules on their palms of their soles and feet. They may have associated symptoms of an infection or symptoms of an STD, and they they generally are polyarticular in presentation. So you can tap the joint if you have concern, if you've got one big swollen joint, but the money is really in getting your culture of your genital culture or your throat culture to and get a PCR. And if they've got a positive gonococcus and then they've got joint pain, you've made your diagnosis.
0: So in this setting, if we're getting a culture from a genitourinary area and they have the arthritis-associated, Is it safe to make the assumption that's the underlying etiology and to go ahead and treat, or do you still recommend tapping that joint and getting some fluid for further culture?
1: I think in general, it's a good idea to start treatment. If you're not sure, then get that culture. And especially if it's an isolated joint in someone that looks well, then you're probably going to want to tap that joint. But if you've got multiple joints involved, as is often the case with gonorrhea, multiple small joints with a pause culture or PCR for gonorrhea, then those are the patients you're probably just going to want to start treatment. And okay. treatments with um, ceftriaxone for seven days. It's, it's more intensive than just for the STD.
0: Yeah. So when you're giving this treatment in a patient that you're seeing in the ED, is this someone you're admitting for daily rocephin or someone you're having come back for a dose in the department seven days in a row? Or are you trying to arrange this with primary care to be done as an outpatient in an ideal I, ideally, setting? Ideally.
1: Yeah. Ideally as an outpatient, although really depends on their follow-up. Ideally, if you can get them close follow-up, they're usually not sick enough to come into the hospital, although occasionally they can be.
0: Good. The next category was Lyme arthritis, which is here in the Southeast, not something that I see very often, but still a pretty big piece of the pie when it comes to acute joint pain that is infectious. Tell me more about this.
1: Yeah, so Lyme is, depending on where you live, it can be a real issue. I've spent some time working in Nantucket Hospital and pretty much everyone coming into that ER has Lyme. And, and what's interesting is if you don't treat Lyme disease, and a lot of these initial presentations are are fairly asymptomatic of the initial infection, about 50 to 60% of these people go on to have this terrible arthritis. And it's a little unusual in that they may not have a fever, they're just coming in with a swollen knee. And that's the most common joint that it does affect. It's an interesting arthritis in that it presents almost like a reactive arthritis, but does respond to antibiotic treatment.
0: Yeah, that, that is an interesting fact. So this is, this is an interesting fact. So this is something that I generally think of as being something auto almost autoimmune in etiology in someone who's had Lyme. But unlike other autoimmune diseases, a course of antibiotics will improve the patient. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, they respond and and they get better. So it's important to make that diagnosis.
0: And when we're seeing them in the ED, if they, let's say, for example, you're practicing in a place that doesn't have endemic Lyme disease, but you're treating a patient who has recently traveled to a location that does, are there requirements for there to be other manifestations? Do they have to have the rash? Do they have to have had a recent fever? Do they have to have a, a known tick bite or have just removed a tick off their body within the last few days in order to, to bring this to the top of my differential diagnosis?
1: I think the key is the history of travel to where Lyme is endemic and this arthritis that you don't have a cause for. I think that you're you just need to think of it because it's not something that you would normally test for if you're if you don't live in a lyme endemic area so it's important to just have that in your differential and you can also send just a blood test for lyme and if you've got IgM going on then you've got active lyme disease so it's not something you want to start treatment for without a diagnosis you want to send your serum test and consider doing an arthrocentesis to get to get a, to get a A better evaluation.
0: All right, now that's a good point. So, if we're sending titers and then sending fluid in real time in the emergency department, that information isn't coming back to me during that patient's ED stay. So, in this case, treatment would be withheld until we get formal confirmation that this is actually what's going on.
1: When you're in a Lyme endemic area, they generally would start treatment at this point. I think it really depends on the level of comfort of the practitioner in the diagnosis, if they've seen this a lot. I think if someone has a really great story, they had a tick bite, they had a rash, they had a fever, they never got treated for Lyme, and all of a sudden, a few months later, their knees swollen up, I would not hesitate to start treating that patient right away. If you have more of a question in your mind, well, okay, this knee effusion, maybe it's just some arthritis, but I'm considering Lyme. Those are the people that you want to have really close follow up and have them follow up and and get some definite diagnosis.
0: Good. And then let's shift gears one more time and just talk about viral associated acute joint pain. So, in your issue, you mentioned actually several of the recent uh, epidemics we've had, things like Zika, Chikungunya, and even COVID now causing acute joint pain. Tell me more about how we. Try to differentiate these and what we have in the way of treatment.
1: Yeah, so chikungunya and Zika, they're not in the, the news and not in our thoughts right now with COVID. But a couple of years ago, I started to see a lot of patients just, oh, it just came back from the Caribbean on my honeymoon. And, and oh my God, I've got this terrible joint pain and a rash. And so at that point, I started to look into chikungunya and Zika. Zika, is a pretty milder presentation, but chikungunya will give you a chronic arthritis, very similar to RA that, that doesn't go away in about 80% of people. I think the key for these patients is to have that history uh, of travel, history of exposure. I think COVID is really everywhere at this point, but most people these days know if they had COVID. So, hey, you know, I had COVID, I, I, it was mild, but, but now I've got this joint pain. There's quite a lot of reports in the literature of this arthritis that develops a few weeks after.
0: And is it similar for Zika and chikungunya that the arthritis occurs after the acute infectious part is resolved?
1: Yeah, so typically after you have your fever and your infection, then you're going to end up with the joint pain. So it's usually not part of the acute presentation, although you can get myalgias and arthralgias
0: and when we're seeing these patients and there is this history of travel or this recent infection with covid is treatment just NSAIDs anti-inflammatories or is there anything more
1: For chikungunya there there have been some studies looking at methotrexate and having some good results but initially you're going to start your NSAIDs and supportive care there's not too much you can do particularly if they're going to go away, the symptoms are going to improve in about four to six weeks with most of these people. There's not much you're going to do.
0: And I'm curious, when we're entertaining this in our differential diagnosis, is this more a diagnosis of exclusion? Do you think it's necessary to tap the joint and prove that it's not septic arthritis if there's a reasonable history with travel or exposure?
1: Yeah, most of the time, these are going to be your polyarticular presentations and not going to be that classic septic joint. So if you've got a polyarticular septic arthritis, as I mentioned before, these people are super sick and you're going to know it. Uh, generally, the chikungunya's and the Zikas are not super sick. They're not mm. septic appearing. So I wouldn't necessarily tap all these joints in these polyarticular presentations. But you can send off a PCR for these things.
0: Good. Yeah, actually, there's a very helpful Venn diagram figure one in the issue that details the monoarticular versus the polyarticular arthritis and even three diagnoses that can present as either of those, which I found very helpful. And so... It's good to know that these viral etiologies can present with polyarticular arthritis, but the patient isn't as sick looking as opposed to someone who, like you mentioned before, has a a septic polyarticular arthritis who's going to be septic and really quite ill appearing. That's a helpful clinical marker for what we might be dealing with. So if you're listening and you have access to the issue, I highly recommend you go take a look at it. It's on page three. Again, something you might want to clip and keep in your pocket, uh, a very helpful Venn diagram. Some of the other diagnoses that you mentioned in the issue for acute joint pain included things like degenerative osteoarthritis, which is something I think is commonly seen. It's very common in the U.S. and probably something we see quite often in the emergency department. When... We're talking about treating these people in the emergency department. There's always the question of imaging and what there really is to be offered to someone who has uh, severe degenerative osteoarthritis. Most of the time, it seems like we're just trying to achieve adequate pain control. Is there really any role for acute imaging in these patients? Is that helpful?
1: I don't think there's a huge role for acute imaging unless you've got a history of some trauma or you have concern for a pathologic fracture, or if they've had some kind of repetitive stress injury, maybe a stress factor. A lot of these people come in with their knee pain and they want an x-ray and you know it's going to show some degenerative changes. And and we do, we x-ray them a lot. Occasionally we get surprised by, wow, there's a little fracture there, but it's pretty rare. In degenerative osteoarthritis, plain x-rays are really not that helpful, in fact, the degree of, of change we see on the x-ray doesn't always correlate with clinically how they present either.
0: Hmm. And these are the, the class of patients who classically have pain that's going to worsen with uh, activity and get better with just simple rest and, and non-weight bearing. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Exactly.
0: And that's one of the helpful clinical characteristics to differentiate this entity from something like autoimmune arthritis. So those patients present with pain that's typically worse when they first get up in the morning. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The classic morning stiffness is typical of, I could go through a, a huge list of autoimmune disorders, but most of them have in common that you wake up with this morning stiffness, the joint pain, and, and with activity, it's going to get better. So that's a key a uh, feature
0: in, in the history. And I'm assuming when you're talking to these people, you're trying to elicit whether or not they have a history of any known autoimmune diseases, the psoriasis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus, sarcoidosis, any of those kinds of diseases that might predispose them to having this arthritis?
1: Yeah. Now, one thing to keep in mind, these patients with the autoimmune types of arthritis are also predisposed to having septic arthritis for several reasons. A lot of them are on immune suppressives. And also the changes to their joints from their disease will predispose them to getting a bacterial infection as well. So just keep that in mind as well.
0: Hmm. Well, that throws a wrench in all this, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So then if I'm talking to someone who has a history of one of these diseases and I'm contemplating autoimmune arthritis as the etiology, what kinds of things might come up in their history or physical that might make me think, oh, this person may have a septic arthritis as a complication of their immune suppression opposed to just a complication of their autoimmune disease?
1: Well, I think your history is really important. If they say, okay, I'm having a flare and I need pain relief, that's pretty straightforward. But if they say, this particular joint right here, I've never felt this before, and that is exquisitely tender to the touch, your physical and your history are really key because especially in those immune-compromised patients, the presence of a fever or a white count or a sed rate is not going to help you. So I think examining the patient and getting that history that this is different.
0: Good. That's very helpful. And then I think before we get to the typical ED evaluation and treatment, let's just touch on another common disease we see. Those are the crystal deposition arthritides, things like gout and and pseudogout. What kinds of things are we looking to elicit in a history from a patient to try and point us in the direction of these diseases?
1: So gout is fairly common, about 2.7% of the U.S. population has it. There's certain risk factors for gout, such as obesity, hypertension, diabetes, thiazide, diuretic use. Your classic story is your overweight patient who had some cheese and some wine and woke up with some joint pain in his great toe. That's your classic history. There's certain things that predispose you to it. I think if you're looking at someone and you're thinking it's gout, and you ask them a history and they have gout, you, and they said, oh yeah, I've had this for years and have it going on today. If you have someone that is presenting that you think is gout and this is their first presentation, these patients tend to have exquisitely tender joints and often have a low grade fever. And I think these are the ones that you want to consider an arthrocentesis in for that initial diagnosis.
0: Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned in the issue that one of the risk factors is exposure to radio contrast dye as well. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah. 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 If someone has had multiple radio contrast injections recently, apparently that can cause uric acid precipitation, which will give you an acute gouty attack. I haven't seen it, but that's what's in the literature.
0: <laughs> that's fascinating. What about this, this mention that coffee has actually been shown to decrease the risk? So for people who have recurrent gout flares and on numerous medications, we could suggest they bulk up their Starbucks gift card and spend a little bit more time at the coffee shop. Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, anytime there's an indication that coffee is helpful as an emergency physician, I have to bring that up.
0: <laughs> it's our sworn duty to exactly. drink more coffee. <laughs> and uh, chocolate. 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 Yes. Chocolate has caffeine in it, by the way. So if it is the (laughs) caffeine that is helpful, that it may not help your obesity and your diabetes, (laughs) but, but it might help your gout. What about ultrasound? You mentioned there might be a role for ultrasound in people who have crystal deposition type arthritis. How is that going to play into my assessment here?
1: Yeah. So there's this classic snowstorm thing that you can see when you're using the ultrasound in a gout patient. So I think that you can use this as an additional modality. I love ultrasound. It's something that we as emergency physicians are using more and more. And ultrasound-guided arthrocentesis is a huge... There isn't a lot of data yet on it. But I think it's incredibly helpful. The ultrasound can help with gout. It can help show the presence of an effusion that's in a joint. Like I said, there's just, there's so many useful things you can use the ultrasound for with acute joint pain.
0: And is the presentation on ultrasound diagnostic enough to keep me from having to tap the joint? Or is it just something that adds a little bit extra weight when I'm considering this uh, crystal deposition arthritis in the diagnosis?
1: I unfortunately don't think it's something you can use to exclude septic arthritis because just having uric acid crystals in there is not enough to say you don't have a septic joint because you can also have, you can have gout and septic joint at the same time. But it, it certainly can help you say, hey, this does look like gout.
0: So much like the autoimmune patient who has a sudden change in their arthritis and comes in telling me this is different from their normal baseline, I would be looking to elicit that same history from someone who has a history of, say, chronic gout and then comes in and says, no, this feels different. That should raise my suspicion that maybe this is the patient who has a history of gout, some crystal deposition, and now aseptic arthritis.
1: Absolutely. I think you have to consider that. There's a predilection to say, okay, we know gout is really painful and say, oh, it's just gout. But I I think you have to consider septic arthritis in, in that gout patient that's presenting a little bit more painful and a little bit worse than usual.
0: Good. Well, that's the summary by disease. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what their ED stay looks like. So, much like our previous issues, uh, we start with the pre hospital setting. And for our pre hospital colleagues who are listening, primarily we would say the most important thing is to recognize sepsis. So, this is going to be our category of patients who are critically ill, maybe have polyarticular bacterial process causing their arthritis, but are also bacteremic and, and septic. And a big part of their job is recognizing and beginning early treatment of that process. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. I think these days we're looking at the vital signs as something that's going to trigger in our minds sepsis. And when you've got a fever, tachycardia, all of the signs of sepsis, that's something that it's really great to really be aware of and come into the ED and and say, hey, this this is something of great concern.
0: And then beyond that, if they aren't hemodynamically unstable or not obviously septic, then it's just a matter of trying to stabilize the joint en route to the emergency department so they can complete their evaluation. Does that sound Exactly.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. So having some kind of stability, most people with joint pain will tell you that it hurts to move. So when you've got some kind of splint in place to provide them some relief, they generally feel better.
0: Good. And now they make it to the emergency department and they're sitting in front of me and I'm eliciting a history from them. What kinds of things am I going to be focused on that will help me lead me down this differential diagnosis path?
1: So I think it's really important to get your background. Do you have someone at high risk for a septic joint? Do you have the immune suppression? Are you on any medications that might you know, predispose you to having a septic joint, when did your symptoms start? How long have they been there? Is this something chronic that all of a sudden got worse? Is there a rash? Is there associated STD symptoms? Was there? I think those are all really relevant things to ask.
0: Good. And in the issue on page seven is a table two that arthritis presentations that can also help categorize things. There's types of arthritis where their common locations are. If they're symmetric or asymmetric in their distributions and the number of affected joints, that's an exceptionally handy tool to have. As well as on page eight, table four, which lists historical factors indicating risks for septic arthritis. So These are the things you just mentioned. Do do they have a history of fever associated with their joint pain? Are they immunosuppressed, et cetera? Again, another very helpful table to have if you're screening someone who's got new onset arthritis or something new. When it comes to examination, what kinds of things are you looking for on physical exam? You already mentioned one. That's the, the pain with any movement of the joint itself. Is that right?
1: Yeah, now that can be tricky sometimes. So if you've got a bursitis or a tendinitis, you're going to get some pain with movement of the joint. And The one thing that is really pretty diagnostic for probable septic joint is pain with palpation of the joint itself. So when you're pushing on the bony substances of the joint, you can differentiate. Is there tenderness in the soft tissue or is it more articular? So that's going to be really important in your exam. And, and also looking for any associated rash or nail splitting or things that you may find with with the different types of arthritis.
0: Good. And then when it comes to laboratory testing, so serum labs, are we, are we drawing blood on these patients? Is it really helpful if we are contemplating a septic arthritis, that we have any labs at all, or do we just need to go for uh, fluid from the joint and make our diagnosis based on that only?
1: So this is a really great topic because I don't know how many times I've had a, a possible septic joint and I call the orthopedist and they say, okay, what's the CBC? What's the SED rate? And 64% of patients with septic arthritis have a normal WBC count. Mm. And you can quote that to them. I think you need to draw the blood. I think you need to get these labs and most importantly, your blood cultures. But if you suspect a septic arthritis, you have to tap the joint. You must do the arthrocentesis and and soon. You shouldn't wait.
0: So really... It's much like our conversations of meningitis, really. If you're highly entertaining the diagnosis, you need to go for the study that's going to give you the definitive answer, which would be the lumbar puncture and meningitis or the CT pulmonary angiogram in someone with a PE or suspected PE. If you're highly suspicious of it, you need to go after joint fluid in this case. And it really doesn't matter what the labs show.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's crucial to get the arthrocentesis. And and soon, I think you really want to get the antibiotics on board. I think when I look at arthritis, I I think of in our STEMI, time is muscle or our stroke. Time is brain. Time is joint. So make the diagnosis, get the arthrocentesis in a timely fashion so you can start treatment.
0: And the peripheral laboratory results in these cases, we talk about things like sedimentation rates and CRP levels and white blood cell counts. Are these things that our inpatient colleagues are going to be trending when they get admitted to the hospital and get started on antibiotics?
1: Absolutely. They they do give you an idea of what's going on and they definitely guide your treatment in the chronicity of the infection, or whatever else may be going on with the patient acutely, they may be helpful. If you've got a elevated CRP and an elevated white count and a fever and a tender joint, you, you definitely have a higher likelihood of a septic arthritis.
0: Good. And then imaging, we, we touched on ultrasound and the utility of ultrasound in looking for effusions, helping us guide our arthrocentesis, and perhaps even what the fluid in the joint looks like as we're performing the procedure. Any role for any other imaging modalities, x-rays, CT, or MRI?
1: I think your x-rays are very helpful um, because I think... Sometimes people may not remember a history of trauma, particularly if you have, in an older patient, they may have some osteoporosis and may have banged their knee. And before you diagnose that septic joint, you may want to get a quick x-ray. Certainly, you can see some bony destruction in something that's more advanced like an osteomyelitis where the the bone has started to break down. So there there is a definitely a role of getting some imaging. It shouldn't be a limiting factor in, in doing an arthrocentesis in someone you think is just an acute septic.
0: And when it comes to the actual procedure itself, again, yet another very helpful table, page 10 in the issue is ultrasound-guided arthrocentesis landmarks. So if you're not accustomed to doing some of these procedures or just need a reminder on the landmarks for where your needle goes, this is an exceptionally handy table that tells you your probe location and your landmarks on the physical exam for where your needle's supposed to go. So. Kudos to you for that as well. That's a very helpful table. When we're doing the arthrocentesis and we've collected fluid from the patient, what kinds of things are we going to then ask our lab to test for so we can try and make a diagnosis?
1: So you've got to send off your gram stain, your cultures, anaerobic and aerobic, your cell count, your crystals. Really important, I think, in this day and age of um, the population of patients, we see acid-fast bacilli culture. I've actually recently seen a couple of tuberculosis infections in the joint, fungal culture, and if you can send off a lactate, that can be really helpful in your diagnosis.
0: And this is a lactate level of the actual joint fluid. We're not talking a, a peripheral serum lactate.
1: Absolutely, of the joint fluid. Not all labs can do this. Hmm.
0: Good. And then as far as treatment, if we have a high suspicion for aseptic arthritis, are we waiting for these results to try and make the diagnosis before we start the antibiotics or are we just going to go ahead and give them while we're waiting for results?
1: Absolutely, do not wait for results. Start those antibiotics as soon as you send it off.
0: Excellent. Uh, And then a common presentation is uh, pain. So when it comes to trying to provide some kind of analgesia, what's the latest in recommendations for these patients?
1: So if you can relieve the pain with NSAIDs, that is ideal. I think that would be the first line therapy. If they can't tolerate NSAIDs, then Tylenol, acetaminophen is great. Depending on what you're treating, there's a role for systemic corticosteroids or oral steroids, particularly in gout, that's something you can use. And then if you've truly got a septic joint, you're going to consider giving them some narcotics for pain relief.
0: Good. And if we're dealing with one of the crystal deposition arthritides, is there any role for the urate-lowering medications?
1: Well, the Teaching has always been that you should not give those acutely since that may cause worsening of the acute disease, although there's been some recent studies that show it really doesn't make a huge difference. There is a role for colchicine in uh, a low-dose oral uh, regimen, starting with 1.2 milligram followed by 0.6 milligrams every hour until pain relief or until you start having intolerable side effects. (laughs)
0: Good, that's good to know. And lastly, let's talk about some of the special populations. So, we have mentioned several of these as we've been talking through the differential diagnosis and the presentations, but let's focus in on our patients with uh, prosthetic joints. What kinds of things do we need to keep in mind for them?
1: So, they're at a much higher risk for septic arthritis than the general population, and this presents either early or late. So early is considered the first month after surgery, and late is after the first month. So they don't have your normal immune system in those joints to protect against infection. Mm. So for these people, you're probably going to want to get your orthopedist involved before you do an arthrocentesis. The anatomy is not going to be typical.
0: You know, this actually brings me to a similar question. I'm envisioning a post-op patient with a surgical wound that might have some erythema around it and we're contemplating cellulitis versus a true joint infection and there's always been this dogma that if you have someone who has overlying cellulitis you shouldn't be putting a needle through it into a sterile space like the joint because you might seed it instead of actually assisting you in making a diagnosis is that scientifically sound, you think, or is there evidence that may not be the case?
1: So this has always been a relative contraindication and, in fact, is not backed up by data in the literature. It's just been assumed. So Mm. we're assuming that if you go through this tissue, you're going to put bacteria in. There's really no data about that. So I think that if you are truly considering a septic joint, just go ahead. It's only a relative contraindication. The only true contraindication is don't go through an abscess mm. to a joint. That would be bad.
0: So don't put pus in the sterile joint. Got yeah. It.
1: And daily, if you can put your needle outside the field of the cellulitis and still get into the joint, that would be, that would be better.
0: Yeah. Good. And then with our patients with the prosthetic joints, you mentioned early consultation with our orthopedists before performing any kind of arthrocentesis. So this is a a procedure that our orthopedic colleagues would still perform to help in that diagnosis? Or is the fluid analysis different if they have a prosthetic joint?
1: Well, it is. They're going to have a lower threshold, a lower WBC count. And because you don't have the normal synovial fluid there, you're going to have less of a reaction. So yeah, they're much more likely to treat at a lower WBC count in that fluid.
0: Good. So heavily reliant on consultation with our orthopedic colleagues in that particular setting. Mm Mm-hmm. And then immunocompromised patients, so these vary really by diagnosis, people on steroid therapy, people on immunosuppressants, people with active cancer on chemotherapy, and it could be immunosuppressed for a number of reasons. What special things do we need to keep in mind for this population?
1: Just that they're not going to present typically. They won't have necessarily the same degree of pain. They may have really subtle symptoms. So just really have a low threshold to do an arthrocentesis on these patients. They're not going to have a normal immune response to a bacterial infection.
0: Good. And then the final category you mentioned in the issue is patients with HIV. So tell me what makes this population unique?
1: So what's unique about HIV patients is that if they are untreated, if they are not on heart, they can get a arthritis based on the viral infection of the joint. And the medication itself can also cause a a reactive arthritis type picture. And that's actually a significant side effect of the uh, retroviral medication that needs to be addressed by their treating physician. So they they can also have a compromised immune system, of course, that will give them a predilection to septic arthritis. So there's many different causes.
0: And the arthritis that they get as a result of the medication, is that a, a polyarticular presentation usually?
1: Usually, yes.
0: Good. Just one more complication for our poor patients yeah. with HIV. That's terrible.
1: yeah, you know, exactly. It's
0: okay. And I do want to draw a little attention to the very end of the issue, which includes, again, two more wonderful visuals, the clinical pathways. One is the clinical pathway for just the evaluation and management of monoarticular arthritis, which kind of walks you through a decision tree to evaluate the patient and the second one is for the acute management of gout uh, which i also found helpful That includes uh, treatment based on symptoms and whether or not you need to consider arthrocentesis there so two more very helpful visuals this issue really is packed with helpful tables and issues and something if you're listening that you might want to keep close at hand for the next time that you evaluate someone with acute joint pain Well, thank you for taking the time to not only author this fantastic issue, but to be on the podcast and to share your knowledge with us. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much for having me here to talk with you today. I think one last thing that I'd like to mention is that at one point in our lives, pretty much 100% of us are going to have arthritis. So this is uh, something we should all learn about and be really comfortable with.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of Amplify. I'm so happy that you were able to join us and I look forward to so much this coming year. I really hope you will take the time to come see us at ebmedicine.net. Check out the free resources at the Foam Education blog. And if you're not a subscriber, strongly consider becoming one. There are so many resources available to you at the website and in the mobile app and by mail. and It's just overwhelming how many great things are produced on a monthly basis. Until next time, be safe, everyone.